Hello, I'm Jonathan Weider, and welcome to this episode of Headroom. Headroom is a place where we'll explore themes around music, production, audio technology. I'll look at it from the standpoint of aesthetics, and along with guests, we'll be talking about uh, innovation, uh, the relationship between machine learning and intellectual property, and aesthetics and creativity. Uh, we'll even wander into topics such as cultural bias and bias in data sets and, and so on. Uh, so I hope you'll join us and enjoy the podcast. Today I'm very pleased to be joined by David Mash. Welcome, and um, you have had a remarkable, active, and varied career, uh, ranging from being an artist, and on your website you refer to you, your being a technologist and a futurist, and I suspect that by uh, just listening to you talk about your experiences, we can learn a great deal, not only about how innovation has impacted music production and aesthetics, um, but also we can project a little bit into the future. I want to start, David, with paraphrasing something that you say on your website, which is that when you founded ICTUS, you conceived of it as a place to investigate the intersection between making music with people and people making music and uh, making music with machines. And the way you write about it, it almost sounds as if you're describing a partnership. Um, do you, is that intentional? Do you have any comments about that? Is that, uh, in fact, what you meant? Yeah, so I think, I think it's helpful to um, understand where I'm coming from is that, you know, I'm a, um, I started playing music when I was seven years old, um, uh, started playing guitar, and I, I had a very, um, for somebody who plays guitar, I had a pretty traditional musical background. Um, that is, I started playing classical guitar. I studied with a, uh, a guy in Detroit, Joe Fava, who was one of the best teachers in the city and who himself had studied with Segovia and who um, arranged for me to, you know, when I was quite young, to actually um, get to play for Segovia and actually went to lots of master classes with classical guitarists. And of course, I Simultaneously, I was really into rock and roll and uh, listened to R&B music. I grew up in Detroit and uh, around great Motown artists. And um, and uh, when I got to Berkeley, um, my focus was on composition. So um, when I started to incorporate technology into my music, it was um, with all of that as a backdrop. So, um, you know, I came to... Uh, I started using music technology and synthesizers in the beginning uh, as a well-developed musician. You know, I was a composer, performer, um, and um, so my first uh, use of the technology was with analog synthesizers and then trying to find a role for them inside of a jazz fusion band. and. One of the things that I really found interesting was the interplay between machine time and human time. Mm. And when when I started using the the synthesizer and sequencer, step analog step sequencers with um, with the band, we had two drummers, and so I was trying to figure out 
how to get the click from my analog sequencer to their headphones on stage and also have them playing with feeling in a jazz groove. And sometimes the machines would be playing mechanically and sometimes I would be playing the machines uh, humanly. And I got really fascinated with the idea of that interplay between humans and machines. And, and of course, I came to the synthesizer at a time that they were monophonic and they were analog and machines didn't talk to one another. Mm -hmm. If you wanted a, a sound from an ARP synthesizer and a sound from an Oberheim synthesizer, you had to buy full keyboard instruments because the keyboard from one wouldn't talk to the other. And then, you know, dealing with um, how do you synchronize, especially in recording, um, you know, with this analog gear to a click and, you know, the normal, at least in, in the late 70s, early 80s, people wanted to synchronize with Simti, which did not necessarily talk to my analog um, sequencer. And then you had to either build boxes or... Um, get engineers to design things for you to make them all work. And at the same time, they were not, the synthesizers were not responsive to human gestures. Right, yes. So, you know, we take for granted things today like uh, velocity sensitivity keyboards and aftertouch and control surfaces and things like that, but none of those things existed. And so I was constantly talking with the makers of the instruments that I played um, about designing things for me that would let me work more effectively on stage and that would let me uh, interact with the machines in a more musical way. And so that's how I got to be a consultant in the industry and working with um, Kurzweil and Korg and Roland and uh, later Yamaha as well on instrument design and uh, especially on the user interface design side of things. So yeah, and um, you know, my entire career from that point forward, both as a musician and as an educator, and eventually even as a college administrator slash leader, were all impacted by both the technological advances, but also, more importantly, the human technology interactions. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the questions that falls out of what you're saying is and I'm hearing this as a sub, maybe more than a subtext, but the the way in which when, when you're playing with machines, when you are required, for instance, to create a synchronization signal that will allow you to play with other players, um, I'm sure that you had to adjust something about what you were doing to the capabilities of the machines. Absolutely. And, yeah. Because the machines and, couldn't adjust to us at that time. Yeah. And that's... You know, what's interesting to think about about that is, um, you know, the first thought is, well, wow, that's probably really frustrating. The second, but that, that follows behind it is, is there anything interesting that comes about as a result of that? And are there long lasting impacts of, of that in interplay? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, at first it was a real drag. I remember, um, 19, summer of 1979, um, we had rented a, a, a rehearsal space in Kenmore Square, and uh, we had the two drummers, and uh, we, we had to have rehearsals with just the drummers and the bass player and me to work on timing issues and getting used to 
um, playing with the clock and figuring out the best way to um, arrange that in terms of, um, you know, what signal I sent to the drummers. Um, and then playing with the click, learning to play in that kind of way. And at first it was really a drag. Um, mm -hmm. I remember working on this piece that it was in 11.8 and then 12.8 and, um, and, you know, just having to play with this click. And um, for me, it was not a big deal because I was playing with the click every day. And, but for the two drummers and the bass player to feel comfortable with that. Um, and then it, then it became um, something of interest, how to write music that, um, that really took advantage of that interplay between the, the human feel of the groove and the mechanical side of the groove. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, um, well, and to this day, <laughs> those drummers, they used to call me Seth, um, because, <laughs> because, um, the, the, uh, most well-known manufacturer of, uh, metronomes at the time was Seth Thomas. Uh -huh. And, <laughs> and, the, you know, after a while of, of doing this, the drummers would just look at me and say, mash, count us off a one ten, And I would just go one. Two, one, two, and I would always be dead <laughs> on with at the metronome marking. I don't know if I can still do it today, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we we adjusted as humans to the machines because the machines weren't adjusting to us, and, <laughs> That's and right. it and it did become, um, like I said, uh, it led me to write some of my best music. I think. Oh, well, say more about that. I mean, in, in how how did it influence you in that way? Uh, because I, I started thinking about how to superimpose um, not just time signatures and, and rhythms, but, um, but superimpose rigid and unrigid time. Um, it made me think about time in a very different way. Mm. <clears throat> and and I, I just, uh, I ended up writing some music that I won awards for and... Um, um, and uh, and that I think still stand up to time today, you know, forty years later. So, it just it's a slight tangent, but one of the things it reminds me of is what I think is a common observation that the musician of today, on average, if you can make a, an assertion like that, maybe I'll, I could, I could talk about Olympic athletes or something. They have training methods that are so different over such a stretch of time now that they have proficiency. And from a technical standpoint, that we couldn't have 50 years ago. I mean, so, you know, would you say that that's true, that the musicians have been attuned to something that's been informed by machine time in a way that's manifest in the, the facility of the modern musician, musician compared to, you know, the musician of 1973? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pulling something out of the air here, but it's, I'm curious no, I, to get I your think, thoughts. I think that... Um, that technique on musical instruments develops by generation, uh, uh, and that is that everybody stands on the shoulder of the generation uh, that preceded them that discovered new things in ways to 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 play music. Um, but I think even more so, um, the the technological developments in the last twenty or thirty years um, have enabled people to study in different ways. That has also provided a, a new way to advance technique. Um, 
and uh, you know, I I think it's um, you, you know when I was growing up, the only way that I could see what a player was doing was to go to a concert or and watch them. Um, and when you're young, that's pretty hard. Um, mm -hmm. Even if you're 13 or 14, where, you know, which is an age that a lot of people like really plug in and zoom in on doing music. Um, it's not like you can go to a club, you know. Um, but today, that's not an issue. You just go onto YouTube and you can find a gazillion performances by any artist you want. And usually from many different camera angles and you can see physically what people are doing um, and learn from it. And, you know, I think, as, as I said, you know, when somebody um, develops some new techniques, I mean, you know, for instance, you know, two hand tapping on guitar didn't exist when I was playing guitar. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that happened, you know, s many years later. And so, but if you're a young kid and you see people playing that way, you say, oh, I can do that. And you do that. And the next thing you know, you're developing something on top of that. And then the next kid's looking at your video that you've posted on YouTube. And so I, I do think that uh, technique-wise, people do um, learn a lot, both from the playing with machines and playing with, with clock tempo and click tempo, um, as well as the technology that allows them to see things that they might not have been able to learn before. Mm-hmm. So uh, could we take this the next step then from the sort of performative to the um, compositional, if you will, you know, um, you, I guess the question is, you know, what changes would that you see in composition that are taking place now, would you directly attribute to maybe a particular change in, in technology? So I, I think that, um, you know, starting back um, in the 80s, you know, probably started with the digitization of sound mm. and then quickly followed by digital synthesizers that could be connected with one another through MIDI and then directly followed by the digital audio workstation. I think those, those three um, chains of development um, created a way for composing and producing music that didn't exist before. And, um, you know, I, I mentioned I, I came to using all this technology as a, um, a mature adult musician. Um, and at first I was stymied by the process change and then I was completely liberated by the process change. Mm -hmm. So in 1978, when I was writing music for ICTUS, I was writing on paper with pen and pencil mm -hmm. and, um, you know, writing scores and then copying parts and then taking them to the band and getting them rehearsed and um, oftentimes making changes after hearing the first um, rehearsal and, and then working with the band through the arrangements, etc. And today, you know, I start at the computer and... Uh, if I generate musical parts for other musicians to play, it comes after I've done the production. Um, and it's generated by the machine as opposed to me writing on paper. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole, the whole process has changed completely because, and I think for the better, uh, 
Now, there, there are older composers who disagree with me, and we, we have these philosophical um, arguments for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, when I was working on paper with a pencil, um, I had to, over a long period of time, develop my ears so that when I was looking at the score, I was hearing the sound in my head. Today, I work with the sound that is the end result. I'm actually working in the medium that I'm composing in. In other words, I'm composing, the medium that I'm composing in is sound. And before, I was working with symbols. I was generating symbols that another musician interpreted in order to create the sound that I heard in my head. Mm -hmm. Now I'm working with the actual sound that I want to hear. And then I can compose in that um, medium and then if I want to bring more humans into the process, I can, mm -hmm. um, but I don't need to. And so, um, and of course, um, after um, close to 40 years of working in this way, I've, I've developed the skill set to actually make it sound like there are other human beings making this music because um, I've developed my, my uh, production skills and my performance skills to, to that level. But... Um, then there's always the fact that I want to have other musicians and they're, especially in the idiom that I work, which is, you know, kind of jazz rock fusion stuff mm -hmm. um, or unpopular music as it's often called. Um, <laughs> uh, you want to have the, uh, the, um, the musical input from other musical thinkers and performers in your work um, because it's richer than just uh, one person's uh, approach. But the process of writing the music is much different now. And um, did you know Jack Jarrett by any chance? No. So Jack Jarrett was the uh, chairman of the composition department at Berkeley for a long time. He also uh, was a computer programmer and uh, he wrote a piece of software which is now known as Notion, um, which uh -huh. is uh, sold by PreSonus. And um, his whole thing was he wanted he wanted the same thing I wanted. That is to be able to work in the medium that you're composing, that is with sound. But he wanted to do it through symbols because his belief was that by committing the work to symbols, that is music notation, something happens in your brain that makes you think differently in the compositional process. And, um, I agree there's something to that, but only if you're well-trained in that um, modality. Um, so a young person who does not read and write music um, at that level um, isn't going to have uh, a better experience, you know, in the composition process working with a software package like Notion than they would with, let's say, Logic or Ableton Live, which lets them work in the actual sound. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, a little while ago, the the question that came to my mind, which I think is related to what you're saying, is: to this day, do you approach the machine with an already formed idea of what it is that you think you want to hear, or have you begun to? I won't use the word rely. Um, you know, get input from the, what the machine could offer that might change your compositional idea. Does that make sense? That, you know, it's... It does, and it, it goes both ways for me. Mm -hmm. um, 
so um, you know, when I was uh, before I retired from Berkeley, my last five years um, of working there were very intense um, and uh, extremely busy years. Um, you may remember that uh, during that period, I led the college through the process that gave us our vision for 2025. Um, and um, I also led the process to create the strategic plan that's currently underway at mm -hmm. Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And I also led the process for the merger with the Boston Conservatory. And I also led the process for creating a project in New York City called Amp Up New York, which is a, a collaboration between Berkeley City Music and the New York City Public Schools. Um, and these were all very big um, projects with a lot of moving parts, mm -hmm. both people and non-people stuff. And, um, and so I didn't get to make much music during that period of time. Except that, <laughs> except that um, the way my very sick mind works is that music is generating in my head all the time. Um, it's actually a, 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 a kind of a well-defined illness um, where music just starts to generate and percolate in my brain. And I hear this stuff and I work through, I see the scores, I, I actually... Um, develop ideas, I think about form, I think about orchestration and sound. And when I retired, like in the very first three months, I produced an entire album of music that had been percolating in my brain, but I didn't have the chance to get into an environment where I could realize it. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. there are those times when I come to the machine with a predetermined sound in my head and things that I want to do. But just as often now, I come into the studio with the desire to make music and a kind of a, a blank slate, and then I'm interacting with the machine. No, that's not the right sound. Oh, that sounds really interesting. I want, What if I did, oh, look at that. Now, oh, I'm hearing a melody all of a sudden. Oh, that, that implies some chord changes. And oh, mm -hmm. and the next thing I know, I'm writing a piece of music, but it's 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 a different process. It's a more iterative, interactive process with the machine. I want to ask you something that includes the phrase happy accidents, but I'm not sure that that quite... You know, um, I, when somebody presents you with a piece of technology, and I'll, I'll, I guess I'll take this back to the subject of MIDI, um, mm -hmm. that, that that system, when it was originally devised, seem to have some pretty clear um, goals in mind about being able to interconnect machines. And I think many people interpreted the uh, the system as one where we could, in fact, this was kind of the fear. It was like an early version of the robots are taking our jobs. You know, mm. you could have a, a band in a box and a person sitting at the in the seat. And it's kind of like the modern day Farfisa or, you know, Oregon or something like that with its beats and mm. whatever. Um, but I, I remember that, of course, that, that also presented the possibility, uh, being a trumpet player myself with a pitch to MIDI converter, that I could play my trumpet and trigger a xylophone over MIDI. I don't know that anybody had actually thought, oh, this is the tool, this is the outcome that we're after here. But it was kind of a, a happy accident that I sort of stumbled on this idea and then, you know, 
So I'm curious about sort of the the uh, the role that that kind of serendipity and you know the creativity that comes out of that plays. For yeah. You. Well, um, well, there's two parts of your question as I'm understanding it. And the first one is what MIDI was originally designed to do, and then the second thing is what happened once we had access to this protocol for connecting devices. Um, and so uh, having been there at the beginning, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think the, the general thing that everybody thought about MIDI was, here's a way that you can, you can buy synthesizers from different companies and have them all respond to the same keyboard. And so that's going to help sell a lot more instruments. Mm -hmm. And since you only have to buy one keyboard and then you could have multiple sound generators from different companies, um, the sound generators could be less expensive because they wouldn't have the mechanical action of a keyboard. And then you could sell more of those. And um, uh, when, when MIDI was, uh, I went to the actual, the first um, meeting of the MIDI Association um, as a consultant for Kurzweil um, because the Kurzweil 250 was uh, well an instrument that I was consulting on already, and and it was um, released just before MIDI um, was ratified. But they knew it was coming, so they built the hardware into it already. Um, but the very first release of the Kurzweil 250 didn't have a MIDI implementation, and so I went to the first MIDI Association meeting with the idea of understanding what everybody was trying to accomplish so that I could come back and um, help Kurzweil engineers ensure that the Kurzweil 250 worked perfectly with everybody else's instruments. At that time, I don't think anybody ever um, really thought through all the things that it was going to create for us in terms of, um, first of all, the separation of the physical act from the sound. Mm -hmm. So just like you were talking about connecting your, your trumpet uh, through a pitch to MIDI converter and having a different sound come out, that, that is a disconnect between the physical act and the resultant sound. Mm -hmm. Up until this time, um, in the history of music making, it, there was a, a, a direct correlation between a physical action and the resulting sound. All of a sudden, that changed a lot of ways of thinking about things, when all of a sudden you could do the same physical action and have many different kinds of sounds happen as a result. And um, especially when sampled sound became widely available. Um, so I think, you know, that opened a whole set of um, options for people that um, inspired them to think differently about um, sound design, sound making and sound control. And it, uh, I think it's resulted even today into a wide variety of physical devices that don't even look like musical instruments that anybody's ever seen, but whose sole purpose is to control sound in a new and interesting way. Mm -hmm. um, and all of that, I think, is, a, is a, an indirect result of the creation of MIDI. Mm. So on to the happy accidents. <laughs> does, does anything come to mind in your in your work in in the music that you've composed or recorded captured 
um, that was a, uh, a delightfully unpredictable uh, outcome. Anything you can think of. And I'm putting you on the spot to remember something, well, you, and you don't have to. Well, you know, the thing is that um, it happens to me every day. Uh-huh. I mean, there isn't a day that goes by that I'm making music where I don't stumble upon something that I didn't know would happen if I did that. Uh-huh. And as a result, I discover a sound or, um, or an effect um, that inspires a, a musical idea that might not have been there otherwise. Um, so yeah, every, every day that happens, I can't point at a specific one, but, um, or a specific one that anybody in the audience would be able to relate to necessarily. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, it, it happens all the time. And I, I think about that a lot. You know, because, you know, I, I think in when I was at Berkeley and thinking about what do people need to know to be a successful um, musician in the world today? Because that's a question I think Berkeley asks a lot, mm-hmm. more than many other institutions. Um, and the second thing is, what's the best way to learn whatever that is, Right what's the best environment for that learning to occur in and you know so that those questions uh, which i started asking back in the 80s because um you know by a strange coincidence i was asked to start you know berkeley's music synthesis department um and so i had to think about well what is it that people need to know to be a master of this field mm-hmm. and and uh how do you learn it? What's the best environment for learning it? And and as I started to build the department and the curriculum and the facilities and hire the teachers, the technology was advancing all the time. I mean, this was, uh, you know, the period of the mid '80s, and you know, the technology curve had just gone really like this because, you know, so much was was happening as a result of. MIDI and SMPTE and digital audio and all these things kind of starting to come together. And um, that's when I really became fascinated by could the technology be used for learning itself and not just be the object of learning or the Mm -hmm. outcome of learning. So I started by developing curriculum that taught people how to use the technology in making music. But then I started to think about, could the technology itself be effective in helping people learn music? And that's how I got involved in that whole side of my career at Berkeley. Interesting. That, that does bring to mind the whole topic of um, uh, AI or ma- machine learning um, hmm. in, in helping people in the context of learning. Um, you know, being able to recreate um, musical models, you know, around harmony or other other sorts of parameters in, that are embedded in musical constructs. Um, mm. I don't know if you've sort of had much of a chance to interact with um, sort of uh, generative uh, machine learning kinds of compositional tools uh, and whether or not you find a use for them either in your composition or in, um, in teaching. So I... I... I uh, was obviously um, very interested in generative uh, tools um, and uh, artificially intelligent composers 
and composer assistants um, mm-hmm. in the process. I, I didn't find any of them very useful to me or very satisfying to be part of my process. I'm extremely interested in, in it, don't get me wrong. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that the current state when I was starting to look at those things was so rudimentary that it, it wasn't of interest or help to me. That being said, I'm extremely interested in all of that, both from the perspective of music education and um, and also from music making, from tools. You know, when you asked me to do this and you gave me some of the topics that you were considering talking to me about, you, you mentioned, um, you know, the whole idea of technological developments um, that are kind of, you know, uh, uh, an outgrowth of things that are already happening, a, de- a development as opposed to a revolution. Oh, yes. And, and to me, the, the, one that, the one technology that has the most potential to be a radical departure and be a new technological breakthrough for music making uh, is artificial intelligence. And um, I think about it less from the help me figure out ideas and compose a piece of music to help me help me with my workflow in a way that um, that, that machines should be able to do. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I'm in the beginning of a piece of work, I'm, I'm working in a different modality. I'm thinking about sounds and, and uh, AI should be able to help me find the right stuff. I should mm-hmm. be able to, to communicate with my machine and it, it should help me find the right sounds, the right tools. When I'm recording, uh, I'm in a different mindset, and the computer should present me with the tools that I need for when I'm recording and understand what I'm doing. And then when I'm in the editing process, I should have a different set of tools available to me that the machine should be able to present to me uh, based on what I'm doing. And um, when I'm in the mixing mode, I'm in a completely different mindset, and I need a completely different set of tools. And so I'm just thinking that even in the, in the set of tool design and workflow design, um, we have really stupid software. You know, <laughs> you open a digital audio workstation and every tool that it has is right up there in your face, regardless of what mode you're in, in, in terms of the creative process. Um, just, you know, it's silly uh, almost. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very, very eloquently put. Um, and I think everybody could kind of recognize the truth of what you're saying. Um, and then there's uh, the whole thing about machine learning, you know, and I think, um, you know, the, the work that you're doing at Isotope is, is a good example of that. And, and that, um, you know, uh, let's just one example, um, fixing a sound. Um, so you have a recording and it's got some problems, um, and, uh, you know, I think that the idea of using machine learning to understand where the, these problems are and what, what needs to be done to fix them and then fixing them for me um, makes a huge amount of sense and, and should be possible. Um, the interesting thing about that is that the paradigm kind of flips at some point where you no longer have to worry about fixing the sound, but you find the sound that you want to preserve 
and make everything else go away. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Well, and that, those are both um, two sides of the same coin in a way. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Um, and machine learning should solve many problems. And then I think about um, when I go back to teaching and learning and I think about the state of our world right now um, uh, during the COVID crisis. And, um, you know, when I think about everybody's trying to figure out the solution to online learning and and their thought is to do exactly the same thing that they do just through Zoom. Um, and in fact, what we should be doing is we should be thinking about what what are the skills that people need to know and how are they best learned and how can artificial intelligence or machine learning aid us in that? Just as an example, you know, um, harmony, um, music theory in general. Um, these are things that are, um, it's a set of knowledge that we need to acquire and it's a set of skills that we need to develop, right? And skills development is often best done through processes that you do repetitively. Let's just say ear training as an example. Um, if you want to learn to recognize intervals, you listen to them a lot of times and you know what they sound like, you tune your ear, and then you test yourself to see. So what do most colleges do? They put you in a class with 20 other people and they call it ear training one. And the teacher stands up there and plays G, B, G, B, G, B, and, and says, that's a major third. Okay, now here's G, B flat, G, B flat. That's a minor third. Okay, now I'm going to test you. And what a waste of human <laughs> time and physical space. I mean, this should all be done online with an intelligent uh, piece of software that trains you to, to recognize things and then tests you. And as soon as you know it, move on to the next uh, more difficult challenge, like a video game. Um, and yet, in spite of how many years it is, we don't have good software on the market to do those things. Yeah. I mean, the word that comes to mind is uh, assistive, that whether, you know, and, and machines are excellent at being assistive tools when properly designed. Right. Um, and also, um, you know, the, the AI that says, um, I notice you're having a problem with this interval. I'm going to give you some more examples and test you on that. Geez, you've moved on really fast with that. I'm going to challenge you even further by this next one. Uh, and, uh, those are things that good teachers do all the time, but um, not possible to do in a class of 20 because everybody's at a different place. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you think about, well, how do we reopen a school during the COVID crisis? We'll, we'll do the ear training classes online and I'll, I'll conduct for you and I'll sing to you and you follow along with me. We should be developing these, these, uh, these kinds of tools. And I'm not saying that it isn't being done. I know that Berkeley Online has been thinking about this for, for a while. We just don't have them yet. Uh, yeah, but I think there's a fair bit of that activity also happening in academia and in, in research. Yeah. Um, one of the people that I'll be speaking with is a man named Brian Pardo, who is developing, using AI to help develop a program that allows um, people who are uh, sight challenged, blind or otherwise, 
to navigate interacting with the music production tools hmm. and, and the machine can learn certain things about behaviors and and helping that interaction and with voice recognition and other kinds of technologies um, um do you know alan Kay? do you know who that is yes yep so um you know, Alan Kay, long before I met him, I, I was inspired by um, a remark he made, which was the best way to predict the future is to invent it. Mm. And, um, and then I met him, I was introduced to him by Quincy Jones um, in uh, 2009. And I was working on uh, helping to develop the Berkeley Pulse uh, method for city music, and Quincy Jones was uh, was a big advocate for the work that I was doing at the time, and so he introduced me to Alan Kay, and Alan was at the time working on um, eye movement detection, and he and I got really uh, interested in the this whole thing about how students learn to read, uh -huh. and detecting eye movement, and then using that information because. You know, at that point, all the everybody who was using Pulse was doing it on a laptop that had a camera in it, and so he was thinking we should be able to use the camera to watch the eye movement, and when they look backwards, prompt them no to look forwards. So to help them, uh, you know, better sight read music, oh. force them to look ahead, and do so by um, using input from the camera on uh, eye movement, which you know I think is is a is an interesting way of thinking about using AI and to, you know, to help uh, advance or, as you say, assist the student in the learning. And I'm sitting here thinking I need that because <laughs> <laughs> trying to get back to learning keyboarding skills that lapsed when I was 13, you know, I, I don't have some of that, well, it's the skill development that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So we um, just parenthetically... You know, I've got about 10 minutes before I'm going to have to... Cut me um, off. What's that? You have to cut me, cut my ramblings off. <laughs> no, you haven't <laughs> rambled hardly enough yet. <laughs> so the, here's your invitation to ramble. Um, let me give you a prompt and see what else uh, sort of comes to your mind. One of, one of the things that I think is truly, been a truly remarkable development in music production is the, um, the buffer. Um, the fact that we had affordable and large enough memory buffers to do a certain kind of signal analysis and, and processing with relatively few artifacts compared to what was possible before has, comp I, I think without that, the version of, uh, hip hop and modern R and B that we have would not exist and pop music to some extent. Um, hmm. even just in the overall, the aesthetic of the sound that's created, hmm. um, and, and I suspect you could probably come up with examples like that that are associated with MIDI or with um, the development of the FFT, uh, real-time, or DFT. Mm -hmm. um, just wondering if there's anything along those lines where you make that, that kind of connection between, you know, you know auto-tune. I don't know. You mean some... I mean, auto-tune is a manifestation of the FFT. Mm -hmm. um, but, but that... that um, you know, something, anything that you've noticed along those lines that you that you find interesting or fascinating. And again, I'm, I'm just throwing something out there that I find interesting. No requirement that you would. Yeah, you know, for me, 
Um, and you're speaking about just in terms of a technological development that's changed the way we can do things? Uh, not, not only that, but it's left an imprint, a, a, a really recognizable imprint on what we're hearing, on what people are creating. And they wouldn't be able to create it in this, really wouldn't be able to create it without that development. Yeah. Well, for me, um, I, I think the, the speed of processors um, has made it, and also, you know, multiple core processors, multi-threaded processors, has, has really, uh, without which we wouldn't have any of the um, software instruments um, that we have today. So when I think about what I had to lug onto stage with me in the 70s and early 80s in order to just make a few notes possible, um, you know, um, I had this huge arsenal of analog equipment, which is far surpassed in capability by the silicon that's in my laptop. Mm -hmm. um, and I think without that, and without the fact that um, that is enabled, and there's you know um, so much um, public domain you know software for creating sound um, that has enabled people to make free synthesizers you know in the software domain that that enabled people on a very limited budget to do unbelievably complicated and wonderful sounding um, music. And I think that that has changed how people come to think about making music in a really interesting way. Um, if you just follow the thinking, you know, so before we had these very expensive, large, heavy pieces of hardware that we had to buy that were available to those who were in an in a income-generating category that could afford to buy them. Mm -hmm. And then it gets done in software so that they can be much more democratized in terms of its availability. Um, but then when that starts to happen, then all, all sorts of um, unintended um, <laughs> things happen to the point at which now with um, simple to use audio software and a wide variety of, of software instruments, people can make um, music in ways that weren't thought about years ago. And I'm not talking about um, the way I was talking about composing before. But now um, with tools like Ableton Live and now with Live Loops in Apple and with GarageBand before that, um, uh, you know, and I actually think the first piece of software was uh, Acid uh, mm -hmm. was, was the first one where you had all this computing power um, uh, available to do these things that hadn't been thought of before. Like you take a loop from this, um, uh, of this instrumental sound from this genre and tempo with a loop from this instrumental sound and genre and tempo and put them together and the software makes them work together in a way that lets people work at a macro level that wasn't possible before. Mm -hmm. And so now we have people who are composing and producing music at this new macro level um, that is music that 
just was not possible to be produced in any other way beforehand. And I think it's affecting an entire way of thinking about making music. And in turn, we'll, you have young people, you know, who instead of picking up a guitar, are picking up uh, Ableton Push and Ableton Live and getting right in at that high level of making musical decisions as opposed to the micro level of choosing which note to play mm. on this instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's had a very profound effect both on the the democratization of music making, but also on genre. I think it's spawned whole new kinds of music making that, uh, not just music making, but genres of music that we listen to um, that didn't exist 20 years ago. Yeah, I appreciate that. The the phrase, making musical decisions on a macro level and enabling access to that activity hmm. quickly, um, that's um, that's inspiring. I think it's very eloquent. Thank you so much for taking this time. And I want to say that um, I look forward to a future where we have fewer stupid machines and more smarter machines that support, um, I think, this hopeful vision for what's possible that you outline. I appreciate it, Dave. More smart machines that make more um, content human beings. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Headroom. Please join me next time when guest Tony Visconti and I will discuss audio technology, how it's shown up in some of the innovative records that he's made, and his approach to record making in general. Headroom is a podcast produced by Isotope Incorporated, music by Smigonaut. Thanks to the team. See you soon.